Hello, this is Michelle Laurie from Australian True Crime. I have written a book called CSI Told You Lies, and you're listening to The Right Way Podcast. Yes, thank you so much for that incredible introduction there, Michelle Laurie. Hello, everyone. If you haven't heard my voice before, you don't identify the voice that you're hearing right now. My name is Sam Elliott, and I'm the host of The Right Way Podcast program. The person whom you just heard introducing this episode expertly, I might add, is none other than Michelle Laurie, whom you might know, or if you were me prior to uh, prior to speaking to Michelle, you would know her from her uh, incredible and incredibly insightful an even-handed, uh, long-standing perennial sort of podcast there, Australian True Crime. Uh, Michelle is also well-known as being a TV personality. Uh, much of her writing has also appeared in the likes of Mamma Mia as well. But uh, yes, I knew her from, uh, or that is not to say I knew her, I knew of her work through uh, religiously listening to her incredible Australian True Crime podcast and have done for a number of years, uh, like most of the nation has as well, I think. Um, Michelle was talking to me about her new book, uh, just out with Ping Around in the House now, CSI Told You Lies. CSI Told You Lies, the uh, title for that actually derives from an expression or a term or a saying, I guess. I'm not really sure that what you use there, but uh, one of the luminaries of the VIFM, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, a, a gentleman by the name of Professor Stephen Cordner. He was the one that coined that and was basically kind of obviously uh, summing up the sort of pernicious effects of shows like CSI has had on the judicial system within Australia that still kind of reverberate and is felt today. But CSI Told You Lies isn't just about that. It is a kind of chronicles... Uh, all of the sort of uh, luminaries within the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine that uh, Michelle has encountered and befriended over the course of her uh, podcast program, the Australian True Crime Podcast Program. So it was a real pleasure to talk to, to Michelle Laurie about that uh, within this, uh, talking about her book, CSI I Told You Lies. Just a little bit of a trigger warning before, um, before I, I do throw to the actual interview itself. Naturally, given that this is talking about some of Australia's most horrific cases that Michelle has kind of covered and uh, spoken with the experts at hand as well as the victims' families. Um, we discussed a number of, uh, of these particular cases. Some of them were naturally graphic without being gratuitous, but still Michelle had to, had to talk about obviously what she'd encountered and experienced. So there is discussion of the likes of the murder of Yuri Stixon, uh, among others. So I just want to give a trigger warning now that it's not a gratuitous discussion in any sense of the word, but it is still a frank and forthright discussion as to obviously Michelle's experience with all of this. So trigger warning now for those that aren't in true crime, either either a fan of true crime or listening to a serious and frank discussion about it. This might not be the podcast for you, but um, yeah, I just wanted to give that a little bit of an introduction. And uh, yeah, please give a big digital round of applause to today's guest, Michelle Laurie, talking to me about her book, CSI Told You Lies. Michelle Laurie, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way Podcast program. How are you going today? Great, thank you. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. It's uh, it's another beautiful day in lockdown here in, in Sydney. So uh, Oh, I know, I know. And yes, I'm in Melbourne, so we're locked down as well. Yeah. The sun is shining. I, I like yours. I like your setup, I must say. What am I looking at there? Is that like carpets to start from the sky? Yes. Yeah. It is yeah, floor rugs from IKEA. Um, because I've been locked down really for so long, it feels mm. like it's never ending. But um, so I have set myself up in a walk-in wardrobe mm. uh, as seen on online, you know. I remember seeing ages ago, a year ago now, people's setups at home, how they were doing things. And um, I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So I've set myself up in a little area here because I was doing so many Zooms, but also because I needed a 
place to record, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's good for sound, it's good for audio and uh, good for Zoom backgrounds, oh. I think. Good stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it intrigued me. It drew my eyes. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it worked. Look, first and foremost, before we get start talking about CSI Told You Lies, I wanted to do a little bit of an origin, shell origin story of where oh. you, how you started to get into true crime podcasting. Yeah, because I know that you had the the nitty gritty committee, and I was wondering if that was ultimately the little the little genesis modicum that then sprouted yes. true crime podcasting. Yeah, definitely. I started that podcast just as to have something of my own because uh, I was working in radio and, you know, podcasting was a new thing and I thought it seemed like fun and, you know, I just wanted to, yeah, have something of my own that I didn't have to compromise on and something to experiment with and play with. And I found it moving, evolving more towards true crime because that was a, a great interest of mine. And then I found Emily. I wanted to find a, a local true crime writer and after that first hour that we spent together recording an episode I asked her if she would ever be interested in doing a true crime podcast and she said yes and I think I did them to both for a while and I just found that Australian true crime was my passion and I let mm. the other one go. Tell me, yeah. You mentioned as well uh, I wrote it down because I've never actually heard them before but Sarah Kooning's uh, serial podcast because you said that was kind yes. of like what, what was that about that that sort of somewhat influenced you as well? Oh, you, you must be the only person in the world who's never heard of it, um, <laughs> which is cool. Uh, it, it's, well, what influenced me about it was it was the first long-form podcast I ever heard in terms of being one story, one certainly one true crime story that was told over 12 episodes. It was a deep dive. It was... Also, having been in radio for such a long time where our bosses told us all the time that people had short attention spans, no one's going to listen for longer than two and a half minutes. Guys, that break went for four minutes. Everyone was switching off in their cars. Everyone would have switched off. And my instinct, my suspicion was always that, no, they won't be switching off. If it's interesting, they want to hear more. And I mean, now, you know, I did Kyle and Jack the other day and we, our break was 17 minutes long and that is, you know, the most popular show in the country. And so listening to Serial with these long episodes and they were so intense and the detail is so intense that sometimes you have to listen to an episode twice because you don't really understand it. You've got to go back and listen again. It demands your full attention. and even now, years later, if you Google any of those details, you still find people arguing about them online, you know? So, yeah, that's that's been a huge influence on me to know that if it's interesting, people will listen, mm. build it and they will come, you know? Tell me a little bit about, you mentioned as well, kind of from the outset, that there was a bit of, uh, not so much a concern, but there was an awareness that there might be an explosion. You, I think you worded it as an explosion of scrutiny. And I wanted to hear a little bit from you about that because I like that line and I was thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> well, I think we, we didn't expect that. That was the thing. We, because at the time, podcasting wasn't big. And, and the mm. funny thing is when I started podcasting and uh, Osha Ginsberg and I often talk about this, that when we both started podcasting, firstly, I think we were maybe the only people who worked in mainstream media and were podcasting at the time. We're talking about like 2011 Mm -hmm. and we 
guested on each other's podcasts and like no one was listening to podcasts. So that was, it was great. It was liberating. We, we were both you just doing what we wanted. We were both fiddling around, experimenting with just audio and with making shows. And that was the fun of it. It was like, I don't know, ham radio or something. It's just, you know, fiddling around. And neither of us expected it to turn into anything at all. So, yeah, we weren't expecting, you certainly don't expect scrutiny then. You don't expect, also, I mean, social media was much smaller then. That was back in the day when Twitter was friendly. <laughs> you know, Twitter was a really sweet place. And um, so we we didn't know that this was going to happen, that mm. podcasting was going to explode, that social media was going to become a battleground and that everything we did and said was going to be scrutinised so harshly. And certainly that's hard to believe now when you, when you look back that anyone could be that naive. But so if you find, I find myself now in this place where I'm doing true crime and, of course, that is and it should be scrutinised and I get that because it is telling other people's stories and, um, and they are stories of tragedy. Mm. But yeah, it's funny. It's, it's actually hilarious to, to look back at a time when people would not have thought that way. Look, one of the main things and you mentioned when you're speaking of other people's stories or telling other people's stories, one of the main things I took away from, from CSI Told You Lies is that uh, it, you made these such these strong sort of connections of all these people from the BIFM and various sort of uh, people within law enforcement. And I wondered uh, how you kind of went about that because I assume that a lot of it, they kind of, uh, they have a sort of, uh, not, a, not an us against them sort of mentality, but they sort of uh, view, I guess, people from the media as not that, again, I don't want to say the enemy, but they're wary. Yeah, they maybe not, they maybe have their guard up and they kind of don't want to be so forthcoming, but you've got these amazing sort of candid discussions throughout the book. Yeah, well, that just comes from history and it comes from proving yourself and, mm. So, yeah, you have to work really hard at laying groundwork and just proving over time that... And also, I mean, I think that coming from my background of being a comedian actually helped from not being a journalist, mm. helped eventually. It, it's, it's funny, it, you know, you would think it, it wouldn't help, but it does. Unfortunately, you're right, police in particular are afraid of the media afraid of journalists because they really have nothing to gain from talking mm. to journalists. Uh, police are scrutinized so heavily, uh, very rarely congratulated for their work, mostly berated when things go wrong. So there's no point in them ever saying yes to speaking to journalists or speaking to the media. So yeah, I benefited from not being seen as the media in a lot of ways. And, um, and same with families, really. So now, though, I'm able to, and this book just only helps with that, able to use these things to, to show people and say, this is my work, here's an example, and, and have them say, okay, yeah, I can, if, if these other people have worked with her and not hated the experience, then, yeah, maybe this is something that we could consider because generally families... I find overwhelmingly do want to speak about their experience for various reasons, but there's very few families who say, no, I don't want to speak about my experience, which is interesting. Mm. 
but it's such a minefield that you have to navigate as well. And I mean, I, I get that. Like it's, it's, it's so true. I feel like maybe your unique background has enabled you to sort of have these sort of candid discussions and people from that's like a sense of trust there that otherwise might not be particularly with what yeah. you talked about with the, the relatives as well as the, the police. Tell me about and the it feels quote. like, oh, go, uh, sorry. sorry, I was just going to say, if it's, it seems that going through the process of being a victim of crime or a family member of a victim of crime is disempowering. It mm. seems like that seems to be a common thread, no matter what the jurisdiction, the crime, the relationship to the victim, no matter what the circumstances, this feeling of disempowerment seems to be common. So enabling people to tell their story uh, is very rarely knocked back. That offer is what I find. Very few people say no thanks to that. So that's true. I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's definitely literally giving a voice to, to those that yeah. otherwise might not have it and, and, and telling their story uh, in their own words, I guess, rather than kind of um, true. that sort of real hard line sort of media approach before the kind of, I hope is pretty antiquated now, but either you tell me your story or I'll tell your story for you. So I think that you're true. Kind of enabling this to be told in their own words. I mean, even I always the, say that. Yeah. I always say that. I always say, listen, if you don't want to participate, I won't tell it. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's never that. That's never the deal. It's never, hey, talk to me or or I'll tell it anyway. That's mm. never, ever the deal. No, I pick up on that for sure. Tell me about the actual quote itself that uh, that lent its name, the CSI Told Your Lies by Professor Stephen Cordner, is it? Steve, Stephen Cordner? Tell me a little bit about that because you've got an interesting uh, connection with that guy. He sounds like an interesting person. Brilliant. Oh, my gosh. Good. Yeah, when I feel like whenever anyone mentions him, whenever I think of him, I feel like the, the emoji with the heart eyes. <laughs> He's so beautiful. Um, yes, Professor Stephen Cordner is like a world renowned. He's a rock star in forensics. He is supposedly retired, but these guys just never, you know, stop working because it's their passion. They love it. Mm. And he is a great mentor to me and to many, many others. He, he was the boss of VIFM, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, for, since its beginning and uh, really is still the sort of spiritual leader of the place. And he, I mean, he started in forensics when it was very disrespected. It was a very disrespected profession in the 70s. And I said to him, so why? Why did you go into it? And he said, oh, because I knew I'd never be as good a GP as my dad. He's so beautiful. He's so humble. Um, mind you, his dad was also not just a country GP, but also a Brownlow medal winning football player and, you know, mm. all that. They're, they're just very humble family. And um, so Stephen introduced me to this idea of the CSI effect, um, which is a thing in, the, in legal circles internationally. And the idea is that, that juries increasingly as as forensics has become not only a very sort of accepted and important part of medicine and of, of investigation but a huge part of popular culture juries have sort of taken it upon themselves over the years to make up their own minds about forensic evidence which is like hilarious except that it's really bad and really important in in legal proceedings and so Experts like Stephen can go to court and give their evidence and find that juries are saying to themselves, nah, well, I don't know about that. I'm going to make up my own mind because, you know, I've seen a lot of CSI and 
uh, I think it's something else or I don't think you, you're very good at your job or whatever. So it's really, it's a really disturbing trend that, mm. you know, we take these TV shows, which are fiction, more seriously than the advice of, of people like him and these other experts. Because, you know, independent audits have have shown that a lot of the stuff in these shows is just doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's not possible. You can't tell the time of death um, from the size of the maggots or any of the other things that we just kind of take for granted as, as being real in these shows. And juries expect that now. So do you think that that also, I wanted to know if you thought that sort of then maybe potentially ties in part and parcel with um, kind of dehumanizing victims as well, because it's kind of yeah. reducing them to fingernails and blood liquidity and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. To bodies on slabs and to props, essentially, mm. aren't they? They're, they're props uh, in the drama. Uh, and yes, the superstars are these are these characters who are, sexy forensic pathologists in leather jackets and also in tv terms they are sort of these hybrid detectives and scientists and the idea that they should be solving the crimes and that they should have magical powers and intuition and be doing all of these other things that in actual fact are not part of their purview at all they are scientists they're very clear set of of tasks that they are there to perform and they're not there to make guesses. Certainly, you know, they're there with a puzzle and they're there to tell you what they can absolutely ascertain and nothing more. So as Stephen says, you know, a lot of their work is gray area. A lot of times they're there to say, don't know. I'm sorry. I couldn't figure that bit out. I'm Mm. sorry. And that's when the juries go, what do you mean? What do you mean you don't know? You're supposed to be the guy who can figure that out. And no, this is not a TV show. I can't figure all that stuff out. Right. Just sows that distrust, eh? Just straight away, yeah. straight away just from the outset in, the, in this trial. So there's a, this immediate disconnect between forensics team. You're so right. Yeah. Can be a real problem for prosecution or a defence, a real problem, yeah. And ultimately for a person, for, for an accused person or, or for, you know, the family of, of a victim. It can be a real problem. Admitting that you don't have all the answers when you don't have them seems to, seems to be kind of detrimental, even though you're being completely honest. Isn't that better than to, to just lie? Yeah. Michelle, tell me a little bit about um, Flinders Street Extension, that place, because it seems to have a special place in your heart. And uh, (laughs) I wanted to hear in your own words a little bit about it, or tell listeners a little bit about it from your own uh, perspective. Funny, isn't it? It does, because uh, I just started hearing about the Flinders Street Extension. I don't know why why it captured my imagination, perhaps because it doesn't exist anymore, or because, you know, I I love the old coppers so much, and... I felt like I was kind of, it makes me feel like I'm in this club with them. I don't know. Ron Idles was the first person who mentioned to me the Flinders Street extension. And as I say in the book, Ron has a way of speaking to me and not not giving context to things, which I actually love because it makes me feel like I'm an old copper like Ron and like he's talking to me like I remember when Sid Graham was shot at in Yarra Valley in like 1972 or something. And I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And then 
when he goes to the toilet, I have to quickly Google what he was just talking about. So, but he never explains, you know, context, never gives things context. He just goes on with his conversation. It's great. And it makes me feel like I'm in the club with him. And so one time he started talking about, oh, that was, that was back in the Flinders Street extension. And I realized, oh, that was the mortuary before the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. And I started to glean, it was pretty crook. And he, he was talking about how the man who was the, the, there was one like forensics guy, Dr. McNamara, Dr. Mac, and he called him Mac the Knife. And I started to realize that he was a bit crook as well. And because Ron said that they needed a, an x-ray and they came, you had to go to the hospital and get the x-ray in those days. They didn't have an x-ray machine. And you, you come back and you give the x-ray to Mac the Knife and he put it up there on the screen. He put it up upside down and. And, and, and all these stories and how Ron and his boss, you know, thought this bloke had been shot. So they came back and they pieced the, the skull back together themselves and all this crazy stuff. And then as that, other people started mentioning the extension, the Flinders Street extension and the smells and the noises. And uh, for some reason, it just captured my imagination. And then you Google it, you cannot find anything about it. Mm-hmm. I tried to. I, I couldn't find much at all. Nah. Mm. I realised that obviously people are ashamed of it, you know, which made me more intrigued. So yeah, it was a crook place. It was, um, and, and I mean, it was the major facility for Victoria not very long ago in the seventies. And there were a lot of inquests there. A lot of families had to go there and sit in the waiting room there for their inquest. Because in those days, inquests were happened if, if somebody died in a car accident, if somebody fell off a ladder, like lots of, for lots of reasons, there were inquests. So normal families were sitting there having to wait to see the coroner and they were hearing buzz sores, um, you know, while they were doing autopsies and smelling. And then these, these air fresheners were pumping out this pink air freshening stuff that apparently in summertime would be wafting out the front doors into the main streets of Melbourne. I mean, you know, unbelievable. And the, the old coppers talk about the back rooms, like bodies mounted, you know, on top of each other. And mm. yeah. And a bit of a self-service situation from what I've heard sometimes for the, um, for the detectives, if they wanted to, Roland Leg talks about wanting to have a bit of a look at a rib cage or something and, and, and taking it out to the driveway himself and hosing it off. <laughs> I, I mean. You, yeah. I remember you talked about that bit with the, the, the detectives trying to piece with like the fingers and the brain, like they both had gloves on, but they had their fingers in the brain. And I think there was they wanted bit... to find that find, they wanted to find shrapnel in there because Mac yeah. the knife reckoned he'd been hit in the back of the head with a cricket bat. And they heard back from the armed robbery squad, that the armed robbers were saying, we'll use a dickheads because we shot him. That was the quote from, from Ron. And we heard back, we'll use a dickheads because we shot him. So Ron and his boss went up there and had to dig around and try and find shrapnel. And heavy. But I do remember like that bit as well, what you were talking about with the, the families kind of kind of having to go into this kind of otherworldly place to, to experience <sighs> these pretty rough sort of uh, proceedings that were necessary as well. Can you imagine? And, and then uh, Roland, bless him, you know, saying that as a younger copper, he, all he could think of was, geez, you wouldn't want any of your family ending up in here. And then later in the conversation, he just drops in. And of course, my mum did end up in there. That's right. Because she was, you know, hit by a tram or something. And 
oh, this, oh God, yeah, God, God, he's tough, Roland. I mean, I mean, this is a bloke. Roland Leg is a bloke who investigated the the Jaden Lesky mm. matter for years, you know. And I mean, that was just a devastating case. He didn't get a conviction, all that. And he's he's a tough old bird, but that's next level, I reckon. He found himself sitting there with that pink spray. You know, and knowing full well the whole process that his mum had been through in that building. And it, oh, Jesus, he's tough. Yeah, it's tough. There's a few people that are pretty tough. I mean, like, you've got some oh, yeah. landmark cases that are happening in the bookshelf. Like, the mm. um, one of Charlie Bazina's, the, the, obviously, the David Hooks case, which was kind of mm. brought about sort of landmark sort of changes within sort of King Hit and Cow Punch. Tell me a little bit mm. about Charlie Bazina's experience with that. Well... Charlie is tough, but Charlie's tough in a, I think in a different way, I would say, in mm. that Charlie's a smoothie. Charlie's a very smooth, smooth criminal. He's not a criminal. He's a smooth character. Um, you know, Charlie builds a rapport with people and is a very charming fellow. And so Charlie, you know, gets the phone call in the middle of the night. People get murdered in the middle of the night. That's how it works. And he's called out to the Beaconsfield Hotel in St Kilda. And he's told by the local coppers who are there, um, look, no one's actually dead yet, but this bloke's not good. He's mm. not in good shape. And there's a lot of people around and he, he's a famous cricketer. Well, they were young coppers, so they didn't really know, they, they didn't really know who he was, but they gleaned. So Charlie's driving out there thinking, oh, God, this is going to be a big one. So um, he really, he knows who it is when he gets there. It's David Hooks. And for any listeners who are younger, like, because I'm, I'm not a cricket person, so, you know, I, I didn't even really understand the significance of it when it happened. But so, yeah, he's a, he's a very, he's an international cricketer. But by this stage, he's a commentator. And he's a real larrikin. I'm going to mm. use the word larrikin. But he's the kind of bloke who's, who every now and then says something sexist. He was sticking up for um, Shane Warne. Warne, yeah. Warney was one of Warney's earliest sort of fracas on the mobile phone, gets sprung texting some lady. And um, and David Hooks called her a hairy-backed Sheila, the lady who, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's that sort of, yeah, it's that sort of go. And um, on the radio, and so that was a big drama. But they, it's that sort of fella. Anyway, so he was out drinking with his mates it was time for the pub to shut. The bouncers came through and said, drink up, drink up. So who knows? You know, there's lots of different stories about how, if he was polite, if he was rude, who knows? But anyway, the bouncers were very young kickboxing types. Mm. And uh, what we do know for sure is that there was a bit of to and fro with this big group of cricketers who'd been playing a test match or something during the day. David Hooks was a coach of one of the teams. They moved out into the street out in front of the pub. He was punched by a bouncer. He was knocked out before he hit the ground. Uh, apparently, he he fell backwards like a plank, just mm. straight back, and his head cracked the ground. And he received a, a catastrophic head injury in that moment. He was still alive when he was taken away in the ambulance. But but they worked on him. The his friends, because there, it was a cricket team, there were like medical specialists with them, so um, they were performing CPR immediately. And then the paramedics arrived. They worked on him there for I think an hour or something, half an hour, an hour. And then he was taken away in an ambulance. He was still there when Charlie got there, but yeah, he never regained consciousness. I don't think he ever regained brain activity. The thing about it was though, he, his whole life had been a passionate advocate for uh, organ donation. Mm. So 
Charlie had this situation at the hospital where he had Hooks's wife. They were separated at the time, but she was there immediately. She was his next of kin saying, I've got a, I mean, can you imagine her shock? She's, you know, in bed at home. She gets a phone call to say your estranged husband uh, is in the hospital and we don't think he's going to make it. And his mates were saying we were having a beer with him like 10 minutes earlier and now they're saying he's not going to make it. Um, and, and they're saying to her, what do you want to do? Mm. Um, it's crazy. Plus, she's got the homicide detective there with her. Anyway, she's saying, we've got to donate his organs. It's all he ever talked about. If there's one thing I know about this guy, that was his passion. We have to do that. Charlie's saying, I understand that's what you need to do for him right now. But I'm telling you, 12 months from now, when this goes to trial, you're going to be very passionate about the fact that you want the trial to to go properly. Mm. And in order to do that, we need a proper autopsy. autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. So because Charlie's such a charming, beautiful guy, he has great relationships everywhere. So Charlie was able to get onto VIFM and get onto the forensic pathologist there and negotiate between them, between the organ donation people, between the uh, Alfred hospital and organize for the, organ donation and the autopsy to happen all at once. So for the autopsy to happen without damaging the organs and yeah, for everything to happen all at once. But the pathologist, Michael Burke talks about the fact that he, even though he's done this amazing thing, he's managed to get all the results he needs without damaging the organs. He talks about the only thing he remembers is arriving at the hospital and I'm getting shivers thinking about it. Just everyone looking at him and realizing who he was because mm. he says he's walking into this environment at the ICU where everyone's been so focused on trying to save David hooks, trying to keep him alive. And then when he walks through the door, that's not what he's there for. Yeah. And he just had this awful, like, Oh, you know, like it's, they look at him and they realize, Oh, it's over. It's yeah. And that's, that, that's his, pervading memory of, of the thing which is a shame yeah rough the, the, the whole case i mean it's just such a sad one as well because i mean the guy that um that was the bouncer Strap clearly time. didn't mean to do that like it, like he was obviously guilt-ridden and stuff like that um, well and charlie makes the point that you know that there was no training for these guys it yeah. was a very common practice to hire young men who were very skilled fighters yeah. at that time and they looked great they were young fit great looking guys can you hear those dogs do you want me to shut them up no it's fine it's fine oh, not, really. not badly lockdown lockdown life mate so charlie charlie makes the point that you know yeah it was common practice to hire these guys mm. who were professional fighters um they looked great they were young handsome fit i think draco was 19 or 20 um and had won like i think international titles and stuff but they did never gave them training in de-escalating situations verbally they never gave them any kind of training in in the job at all they just put them in suits and put them at the front door and so this bloke was faced with a situation where he had a pub full of older, very confident men, a bit pissed, mm. and he was trying to get them to go home. And, and also these older blokes, no doubt, were peacocking a bit in front of their girlfriends. And, you know, it, it escalated. 
and and that after that there was a lot of um there were training you know stipulations brought in about about how bouncers needed to be taught to handle situations like that without using physical force yeah it was just such a huge like landmark case and i'm glad you included it particularly because what we're kind of harking back to with this uh, giving victims voice it was very much Hooksy wanting the the organ donation. I like that whole inclusion, yeah. kind of learning about that too. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, they started the foundation and it increased organ donation exponentially. It was huge. Mm. Look, this, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping through because I've seriously got so many notes to written down. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about Rin and Maz, Maslin? Maslin? Yeah. Yeah. Because this- yeah, well, Rin is Rin Norris. Um, they're married, but Rin keeps her maiden name. So Rin Norris and um, Anthony Maslin. Yes, yep. the Maslins, yeah. So with this one shot, I felt that this was one of the, because I mean, there's so many um, <laughs> horrific cases in here that you've covered, but um, this one and another one I wanted to touch on in a sex were two of the ones where I'm like, okay, this definitely, um, if, if not rattled you, definitely impacted you as in a powerful sort of strong emotion. So can you give me a little bit of an overview about that? Well, I mean, the Maslins, I didn't know. I'd never met them before, but mm. I, I, I just knew that, for David Ranson, the pathologist mm-hmm. that I wanted to write about, I knew that it was huge for him. So I thought, okay, I mean, he, I mean, David's been working for a long time. He's got a long and illustrious career. So there was any number of cases that he and I could talk about, but I thought, okay, I'm going to contact the Maslins and see if there's in, any interest there because I know that, or I knew that they had a lot of things they liked to say, they wanted to say just from following them in the media, you know, researching them. But I thought maybe they've, maybe they're done. Maybe they're sick of talking, but I contacted them through their foundation. They started a foundation in honor of their three children, um, Otis, Evie and Mo. So that's always a, a way that I try and contact people is through a third party to give them the agency to contact me, you know, mm. to be able to pass on my details. Can you pass it on to them? Here's a brief overview of what I'm doing. Uh, and I'm inviting them to contact me if they're interested. So they did. So I heard back from Rin. She's like, yeah, okay, I'm interested. Let's talk. So, um, and again, it helps that I've got this background, you know, that I can send them links to the podcast of like maybe similar kind of stories or similar families so that she can hear for herself how I've dealt with that and, you know, might give her an idea. So we chatted a few times over Zoom there in Perth and um, we got along really well. They're just such fabulous people. Like mm. I feel like we would be friends if we met any through any other context. They're creative, you know, we're around the same age and all that stuff. So um, the thing about those guys is that they, you know, made a decision to keep living after their children were killed in MH17 and that that's just very much who they are. They're just very purposeful. They don't do anything by accident or they, uh, I feel like that they just, they, they really take charge of their lives. I feel like that they were like that beforehand and they are still like that. They are very thoughtful. They make decisions about how they want to live their lives and they follow through with that. And they decided that they, they had survived, they had lost their children, but they were still alive. And so they decided, okay, well, how can we live these lives with respect to those kids and sort of dedicate these lives to those children? Hmm. 
And so that's how they live every day. And, and similarly, they decided to have another baby because they decided, you know, we are parents and we don't have children. That doesn't feel right. So I think we should have a baby. And so they decided to have a baby and they had Violet. So, you know, they're just great examples of not just surviving, but living, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And that's, to me, that's the glory of that chapter is, yes, it's harrowing. But the other side of that coin is they are, we use the word inspiring a lot, but they, it's not, it's not inspiring that they're just getting up every day and doing stuff. They have stuff to say about that. This mm. is how we do it. This is why we do it. You know, I think the way you worded it, I like it was the endurance of human spirit. And I think that you yes. kind of encapsulated that there because it, it did feel like the endurance of human spirit because there's, there's just this unimaginable tragedy and then the prevailing sort of human spirit thereafter, exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's almost equal, I would say. And I know that's, that's unfathomable, but it feels like their spirit is almost as big as what happened to them. Like nothing mm. could be as big as what happened to them, but I swear it's like their spirit is almost as big as that. I mean, they are, because, you know, to, to be with them and to see them laughing and, that they, and to have them entertain you and to have them make you feel comfortable about things and, um yeah it's it's they're indomitable it's another word that's overused but they are it so i'm just gonna ask my son to shut that dog up before i bloody kill it it's fine, it's fine. um yeah jump, jumping a little bit ahead there so kind of also touching a little bit upon um michelle what you've you've said what i said sort of with the couple of cases that I thought that really stood out where I felt that you were um, definitely impacted in terms of like your, your, whether your own experience or what you felt. But another one that I want to kind of lead into was the, the murder of Eurydice Dixon as well, particularly mm -hmm. because obviously you being identifying with her as being a young comedian, similar sort of starting out. Talk me through as much as you, you're comfortable sharing about that, because that was probably for me, probably one of the most heart wrenching parts of the entire book. Yeah. Well, I actually was with Charlie Vazina. The we were working on something else. I can't remember what it was, but I remember him uh, arriving wherever we were one morning and and on his phone and saying to me, um, "Oh, they've just found a young girl in Prince's Park or whatever. I think it's Prince's Park, whatever the park is." Hmm. And um, I said, "Oh no," he said, "Yeah," and, and I can't remember. And he told me a bit of. A bit, a bit about the circumstances and um, whatever it was we were doing that sort of, he was getting a few updates and it was just cast a pall over it, you know? And, um, and I remember thinking to myself, Oh, I wonder who's on call at VIFM because as I say in the book, after you realize what happens and who the people are and how much they give emotionally to their work and all that, when I hear about certain cases, I do think, I do think of who, who's working on it, you know, because you just know how much it'll take out of them sort of thing. And so the more I heard about this this morning, I was thinking, oh, I wonder who's on call. That'll be a tough one. And I even emailed somebody there to say, oh, you know, I'm thinking of whoever's at work today. And they said, oh, it's Joanna. And I thought, oh, no, it's hard. And 
then as the day wore on and the and the night and i learned more about the victim and uh, and they started saying oh it's this young woman she was at a comedy gig she was a comedian of course i got more interested i thought god do i know her do i know you know and i did not know her she's a very young comedian and she'd not been around very long but then it sort of really got to me because i thought oh man that that was me in the beginning a young comedian doing gigs you don't get paid for gigs when you're in the early days and i walked home all the time because i, I was so broke mm. and you know you do that and also after gigs you like you've got so much energy energy adrenaline you know it's just it feels good to walk home it feels great to walk home in the cool night air and just walk off some of that energy before you try and sleep and i just felt this almost survivor guilt for a long time because i felt like god here am i living this really wonderful life that i live doing so many interesting things all of them based on my stand-up comedy career that started so young at 20 she was 22 i think 23 and and it all started back in that walking home from gigs at that age you know and it's all blossomed from there and i thought well she should be she should have been living this life that i'm living she should have been able to to do all these things to have it all blossom from there uh, like i have and how you know it's not fair it's not fair that i survived that early period of walking home and she hasn't so yeah, that's, that's where it came from. And then the more I learned about it, and certainly in the writing and then writing about Aya Masawi, who mm. was also murdered a few months later by a stranger, I found it a really fascinating chapter to put together. The two of them, young women from close families, walking home alone at night, murdered by strangers, murdered by young men, who were both from very disadvantaged backgrounds uh, of similar ages. Mm. And then Joanna Glengarry, the forensic pathologist who performed the postmortems in both cases, a similar woman, you know, similar to me and both of us could really relate to both of those young women. So I found just a lot of really interesting reflections in, in the stories yeah and and i've 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 thought a lot about Cody Herman since then, and there are a lot of things about he's the offender who murdered I, I am Asawi, and there are a lot of things about his story that I'd like to write about in the in future. So much to unpack there. So yeah, first and foremost with Joanna, you did mention, I think at one point, how her, her and UAD wouldn't be able to stand out or they wouldn't be able to melt into a crowd. They stand out automatically just by virtue of yeah. their appearance and personality. And yeah, stuff like just that. gorgeous, tall women who just really own their own their individuality own everything about their physicality um yeah just bright bubbly women um and i always say to joanna she actually is the kind of woman that they would make a tv series about you know like she is this she's not she's i'm gonna say she's not what you'd expect a forensic pathologist to be because firstly you expect them to be men you expect them to be older men um she's just this blonde bombshell with red lipstick and whenever she goes still goes to crime scenes oftentimes young coppers go oh excuse me miss you're not allowed in there 
you know, when she goes under the fleece tape because they just can't get their head around the fact that she's she's like, uh, I'm the forensic pathologist. Um, yeah, so she, they should make a TV show about her. She's you should fabulous. do it, Michelle. Use your, use your clout. Make it happen with Stan. That's what I reckon. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. And all, you know, she was very close to her dad and both victims were very close to their fathers. So there's, there was a lot in that chapter. It kind of also harkens back to, you, you, you touched on it at the beginning, I believe. There was some sort of line that really kind of stuck with me and it was talking about the, the woman of the week who's going to be the next one kind of, oh, yes. kind of thing. Well, and an Australian woman is murdered every week by you know a partner or a former partner. And I do think that a lot. I think, well, next week's woman is alive now. And does she know? You know? Does she suspect? Is she scared? Does she have any idea? You know, and we see these horrific crimes, women set on fire. Who was it? Someone said to me recently, you know, that woman who was set on fire, not, not this week's one, yeah, that God. other one, the last one. And I was like, oh, God, fancy saying that. And it, yeah, I do know what you mean. Not this week's one, the last one. So how like how as a society do you think i know we're gonna start asking the big questions yeah how do you think that that can be rectified like worked on like is there something that's that's about dialogue is there people like you and jess hill that are making podcasts like the trap that are kind of working towards that what do you reckon well the first thing i reckon is that this is the value to me of true crime to me Mm. the value of true crime is that it shines a light on systemic problems in our society when you look at enough crimes in one society you see the same holes all the time the same gaps all the time the same problems all the time so you see the same problems in the mental health system in the education system whatever in the welfare system and we see this continuing gap this growing gap income equality um you know, we see this continuing gap in services, in support services. And, you know, uh, we see that our most violent offenders generally can be seen to have been, come from neglectful backgrounds. We see that people, the, the young people in our youth detention facilities in Australia we're up to about, I think, very close to 50% of them mm. have been subject to uh, family violence orders as small children. So there's a clear follow-through there, you know, um, from undesirable family situations. But I'm not blaming their parents. I'm saying that, you know, support for parents who are struggling with young children will prevent violence 15 years from now. Mm. And we have very clear evidence to that effect. So, you know, spending money on in, in certain areas of development for younger children and for families that are struggling will prevent violence in, 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 in the future. We know that, but it doesn't, it doesn't win votes. What win vo- wins votes is blaming those parents and calling them leaners and, you know, all of that, all of that stuff, this, this system that we have here where we like to sort of punish people 
um, we're, we're great punishers in Australia. Mm. And I'm sort of, I'm choosing my words very carefully because it's, it's such a controversial area, but I mean, we know that Medicare and Centrelink are, are very closely linked. So we can see very clearly where our most vulnerable citizens live in Australia on the outskirts of our cities, where our Cody Hermans live. Cody is the offender who murdered Aya Masawi. We can see very clearly where people like Cody live um, because they're the people who don't show up for their Centrelink appointments, who get cut off their benefits, who, you know, have all of those things happening, who are homeless, who present with mental illness at the age of 15, typically because by that stage their, you know, drug use has spiralled out of control because of all the previous issues in their childhood. We can see where they are. We can also see that they are typically the areas where they don't have the mental health support services. We can see that. So why don't they? You know, that's my question. Why, why isn't the funding going there to have extra services in those areas? It's a, in Bundura, it's a, in, in Mount Druitt, in, in those places, in Logan, all over Australia, these are the cases. Why isn't that happening? That's a really good point. I'm, I'm hoping the question wasn't too much directed towards me because that's far above my pay grade to try and answer that properly. Um, I, mean, you, I mean, I think we all know where the question's directed. The question's yeah. directed at state and federal governments. But the thing is that we all vote. And again, when you look at enough true crime, you start to see very clearly how our votes affect policy, which affects funding. And you see very clearly you know, the effects of funding and the effects of funding cuts and funding cuts to services that affect domestic violence. I mean, have been going on for, you know, years and years and years. I mean, the other day there was a story about the, um, the Thomas Embling Hospital here in Melbourne, which is our main sort of um, hospital for people who are deemed, you know, mentally unfit for trial and for prison. So I don't know if you remember a story here where a lady was on a, a FaceTime call to her sister and a man walked into her home and violently attacked her and killed her. Oh, no, and no, no. yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months ago. And um, he was known in the neighborhood as, as mentally ill. He was well known in the neighborhood. Now, as the attack was, was happening, her sister phoned this lady's son and, t and alerted him. So he raced over there, and by the time he got there, it was too late. His mum was dead, but he, he grabbed the offender. So the offender was caught immediately, but they don't have a bed for this guy. Mm. So, you know, this is our major facility in Melbourne, um, and this is clearly a person who needs to be there. They don't have room for him. So mm. that's a... That just know. automatically, straight away, seems it's kind of that whole thing of being reactive rather than um, kind of preventative like it's like and it's like that's that's funding isn't it that's like how how is that place not funded how is that possible this is the facility where the man who killed masha vukatic um should have been he had been released from this facility and then he cruised around melbourne for a day and went and murdered a schoolgirl in the park um how is that not funded well that's what we're voting for i guess God, it's troubling food for thought, but at least it's being discussed now with, with me and you and uh, your, your platform. Because I guess that's kind of like what I wanted to sort of end with is, is 
because I mean, true crime is so popular, Michelle, you're right. Like it is this insanely, insanely popular thing. And I mean, it's, it's something that's always fascinated me. Um, but I wanted to kind of uh, get a little bit of advice or give listeners advice as well, because there's a very fine line and you walk it very deftly, I must say, just a preamble. But there's a very fine line between being informative and being gratuitous and and kind of uh, pretty much being completely the antithesis of everything that you've sort of kind of conveyed here in CSI, I've told you lies. So what advice would you then give to people that, that are maybe interested in true crime and would consider maybe launching their own podcast? How do they go about ensuring authenticity and edification, but never kind of verging into gratuitousness? Well, I'm going to say it's easy for me because I generally work with victims or victims' families like I have in this book. And on the podcast, we have guests. So we're normally, you know, working with them. But when you're not, I try, I try to imagine that the family will read or hear it because generally they will anyway. You know what I mean? So you just got, because you just got to imagine that they will read or hear it. And then that prevents you generally from saying or writing anything you'll be ashamed of. That's mm. what I think. So you think to yourself, would I say this if I thought, the victim's mother was going to hear it because she probably will because somebody will hear it and pass it on to them. That will happen. So yeah, if you're tempted to put in that detail, that's really extreme or if you're tempted to say that thing about the victim or whatever, just think, would I, you know, what if their sister hears this or what if their child hears this? Um, you know, how would I, how would I feel knowing that if you feel ashamed, don't put it in. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. It's no, very good. It's true. Simple as that. And it's not always easy, believe me. I mean, yeah, there were, there are definitely times where you're like, oh God, I'm so sorry. But that's, that's okay. I mean, you know, sometimes, and, and, People will say to me, I know, you know, I have to say that a lot, believe me. I have to say that a lot. I'm so sorry. Sorry, this is that bit. Sorry. You know, and they're like, yeah, no, it's, it's okay. You know, so you have to sometimes put details in. But, you know, my argument is to that is, and I, and this argument came to me from a victim's family member. They said, no, like, you know, I want people to know what happened. I don't want to whitewash it. People need to know what he did, you know, so... I'm not, I'm not saying whitewash it. I'm not saying cut out the violence or, um, or, or anything like that. But, you know, there, there are times and for different audiences, I will tell stories differently. So sometimes, you know, I might put a detail, like for in this book, I put a detail in about um, Natalie Russell's postmortem that I did not put in the, in the podcast. So, cause you know, this is a book about postmortems. So, yeah. Know your audience. Always be yeah. respectful. Very much what you kind of just said there in terms of I can totally get behind that, which is if you're not comfortable, if you're not going to be comfortable repeating what you've just said to to a victim's family member's face, then definitely don't include that. Yeah. 
It seems like I might be getting a little bit overall, a little bit better with that though. I feel like kind of back in I the agree. day, like it was, it was, it was a lot less about the victims. It was a lot more about the notoriety of the, certainly I've yeah. been guilty of it. Knowing like back in the day when I was in a Me teenager, too. like I read all Me that too. sort of stuff, didn't even give any sort of thought to, to victims until much later. In and life. I'm sure I've said it. I'm sure. Yeah. I think it's a really an emerging consciousness. I'm sure I have said and done things that I would regret now. It really came home for me when I was contacted by a family asking me for help because a book was published about their family members without their permission or assistance. But in the defence of the author, one family member participated with her, but the rest of them did not. And they were just devastated because there were details in the book that they didn't know and um, it was horrible. It was a horrible, horrible situation. And that really drove it home to me. Sitting with them and listening to them talk about it was awful. So, yeah, I really got it. Yeah, for sure. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, CSI Told You Lies, I'll include in the, the bio of this particular episode where you can you. people can pick it up from Ping Random House. But yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm actually, <laughs> I've listened to so many of your podcasts, so it's actually a bit wild talking to you now. So I'm slightly oh, but, but yeah, no, you're a cool person and you are, you're a great podcaster. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I feel like I rambled on, but thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. So everyone, that was Michelle Laurie talking to me about her new book, uh, CSI Told You Lies, which is published by the good folks at Penguin Random House. So what I'll do, as is the norm, is I will put into the link bio, I will put into the bio slash description of this particular episode, the link to the good folks at Penguin Random House, the Michelle Laurie CSI Told You Lies pay, so you'll be able to order it digitally there. If you... Uh, are not able to order it from Pink Random House directly, then please, by all means, I recommend, particularly if you are in lockdown, or if you're not, but if you're in Sydney or Melbourne, or feel sympathy for those that are in lockdown there, particularly the brick and mortar bookshops, please buy your copy of Michelle Laurie CSI Told You Lies from uh, any of your brick and mortar bookshops that are doing a thriving trade, as you would understand on lockdown, given that uh, everyone's got a lot more time to read, I hope. Uh, so yeah, go to your preferred brick and mortar bookshop, do uh, get a copy of Michelle Laurie's CSI Told You Lies and every other book that you've ever wanted to read. Now's the time to read those classics that you've been putting off for years. If you haven't read them already, get stuck in. I swear that I'm going to read uh, James Joyce's Ulysses uh, before this year is out and also read Hilary Mantel's A Place of Greater Safety as well, which I've had staring at me accusatorily for, for a while, but I'll get my hands on that. Anyway, I digress. So thank you very much again to Michelle Laurie for talking to me. Really cool person, I must say. Um, and yeah, thank you so much to you, the listeners, for as always listening to this episode along with all the others. Be sure to check out the rest if you haven't already. Give a cheeky follow to Spotify's page if you haven't, uh, meaning the obviously the Right Way Podcast Spotify page if you haven't already. Check out the Insta feeds, the Facebook and Instagram feeds for the podcast if you haven't already be a follower tell your friends about it tell your hairdressers about it. well i shouldn't you still got a hairdresser i've got a hairdresser i just haven't been able to see them in a good long while but um yeah i will be posting in the coming weeks i'll be posting a video notifying you of the upcoming guests as well so they won't be kept in the dark but in the interim thank you very much for listening to this episode and wherever you're, you're in sydney melbourne anywhere else in australia please stay safe get vaccinated and uh have a good one